pray again. Pray, come Holy Spirit. Lord, pray that whatever I say, if it's from you, that it would live in our hearts. And whatever I say that's from me and not from you, that it would fall to the ground and die. And we just pray that you change us and make us like Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, over the course of Advent, uh, we've been preparing our hearts to celebrate the coming of Jesus at Christmas and looking forward to his return at the end of time. That's what Advent is about. It's about looking forward uh, to uh, something that's coming. Uh, For those of you who want to get into the Latin, uh, because I've been geeking out, ad means to, you know, you can do the rest of the work yourself. Um, You are, we are looking forward to something. And actually, we've been really intensively uh, following that program. So last week, uh, Heather, for example, was talking about looking forward to the true government that Christ brings. That uh, for those of us who were rejoicing after the election and for those of us who were despairing, Heather was encouraging us to actually look forward to Jesus, both at Christmas and uh, in eternity, to get a sense of what government could be like and what it should be like. And, and we've been working through those values of hope and expectation um, over the last few weeks. And actually now I want to move more towards looking at the Christmas story itself. I'm focusing on a bit of it that I don't think gets enough attention uh, because actually it's, uh, it's really important. I was sitting in a hospital waiting room last week uh, for an appointment with a consultant and I, I didn't have a book with me, which was a fatal error if you're in a hospital waiting room. Uh, and I was sat there and they booked all the appointments for quarter to two. Uh, so oh, you, saw, you know you had the scene, you can imagine, you're sort of sitting around and you think, well, I must be next because I've got my ticket and I'm at quarter to two and it's quarter to two now. And then you look around and you see, but his ticket says quarter to two as well. And so does theirs. And you realise that uh, for the hospital, the time exists in a single moment. It's kind of an eternity. It's a metaphysically uh, unique place because uh, for the hospital staff and for the doctors who make the appointment, um, a thousand years are as a day and a day is as a thousand years. You know, they exist in this space where everybody comes at quarter to three and nobody is ever late because it's always quarter to three. So uh, quarter to two. So I'm sitting there, and I, I realize the only book I have with me is my Bible. I thought, well, I must be very holy. And uh, it's not at all because I've forgotten to pack anything else. And so I pull out my Bible, and I start reading the Christmas story, because uh, I had four sermons to write in a week. And uh, it's not a cause for pity. It's a cause for lamenting my lack of organization. And uh, four sermons to start in a week. I thought, well, I'll start reading the Christmas story and see where the Spirit leads me. Uh, that's kind of vicar speak for I haven't done my homework and I'm reading through it. I was really, really taken with the opening chapters of Luke. And actually, I wrote this morning sermon pretty much there and then in the hospital waiting room, uh, with some polishing later. And it's a bit of the Christmas story that I, I don't think I've paid enough attention to. Um, I think partly because it doesn't, it's difficult to know what to do with it. And because it's in the run-up to Jesus coming you kind of have that sense of slightly the night before the Lord's Mayor's show, that, you, that this, this, uh, these passages get overlooked because the main event's coming up now. And actually I want to say there's some merit in stopping before we get to Jesus and looking at it. Uh, particularly, I want to look at how we prepare our hearts as we come to celebrate Christmas on Christmas Day and as we go into a new year when Jesus wants to use and speak to each one of us, how we prepare ourselves So that in those moments where we sense God speaking to us, we can actually respond and be used by him. How do we prepare ourselves so that when we meet with Jesus, 
we can actually be used by him. I read two of the stories that lead up to Jesus' birth. So I always give a, a lunchtime summary of what we're thinking about. Here is today's. God wants to bless us and use all of us in his plan to save the world through Jesus. And we need to respond to the call he gives. God wants to bless us and use all of us in his plan to save the world through Jesus. And we need to respond to the call he gives. He wants to bless and use all of us in his plan to save the world through Jesus. So we need to respond to the call he gives. And I'm going to be thinking a bit about what that means and what can stop us from responding and actually how we then deal with that. Um, So we're going to have one reading this morning, but it's a bit longer. And we're going to read from Luke chapter 1 and verses 5 to 38. I wouldn't normally do this, but given that I've been speaking all morning, and I'm going to be speaking again in a minute, I'm going to ask if there's anybody who feels comfortable reading. Anybody feel comfortable reading? You'll read, Liz? Good. Up you come. Well done, Liz. Good job. I've actually got it on the iPad if it's easier for you to read it here. Um, Is that easier or that? No, I'll read it from your Bible. Okay. Can you hold that? Okay. So was it 5 to 38? Yeah, you need to hold that right next to your mouth. Okay, we all found the page. Uh, Luke 1, verse 5. Entitled in my NIV version, The Birth of John the Baptist Foretold. In the time of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of the Lord, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshippers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of him. Sorry, at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of, of the righteousness to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zachariah asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? 
I'm an old man and my wife is well on in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not be able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he'd stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he'd seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favour with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son. And you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relation, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. Thanks, Elizabeth. (laughs) Please. I'm already putting a towel up, sorry. So I was sitting in the uh, hospital waiting room, and I I got as far... Uh, as uh, reading through the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth and getting into the story of Mary. And suddenly, when I was reading these two stories together, one after the other, it became obvious to me that Luke had put them together as a pair. Uh, bear with me on this, but I'm, I'm explaining the process here. To, it's slightly because of what I'm trying to do is teach how we read the Bible as well as anything else, but how you can read the Bible well. You get to this position where these two stories, and actually they have the same structure, I'm not making this up. You can uh, have your Bible open and see it yourself. 
There's a person, they're either in their place of work or in their home. The angel Gabriel appears. He makes an announcement that God is going to do something, in each case to give a child. The individual responds in a particular way. Gabriel gives an answer, and then we're told that the, uh, what God says is going to happen. Happens. Um, they, they follow the same structure. They actually have the same language all the way through. So I, I, start, I noticed this, and I thought, well, I don't think that I've really picked up on that before. Now, it might be obvious to you. You might have sat there and thought this is obviously true. Every time I've read this Bible, I can't believe that he's the pastor, I'm not. But I hadn't really picked up on this. And so I started pondering it and, and, and looking at what it was that Luke was trying to, to, to teach in this. That's actually how the Gospels are constructed as books, is that they're not straightforward biographies of Jesus. You know, this this happened, then this happened, then this happened, you know, and each day follows sequentially. Very often they pick incidents from Jesus' life and shape them together to teach something about him. They are they're records designed to teach. So the question when you come across something like this, where you've took two stories that are obviously told in a certain way to make them parallels and then put next to each other, why is it that he, what is he trying to teach us? about Jesus and about ourselves. And I think they, <clears throat> they are teaching us about what, who God is and what he does and about who we are and how we're supposed to respond. I think they're designed to teach us about who God is and what he does and how, who we are and how we're to respond. So I'm going to just outline the stories again. So first of all, you get the story of Zechariah. Now, Zechariah is a priest not only is, a, is he a priest, but Luke goes out of his way to say he's a priest of all priests. He's a priest who's married to the daughter of a priest. You don't get more priest than Zechariah. If you want to see, a, he's like a pastor, a sixth generation pastor who's married to the daughter of six generations of pastors. And you look at their sons and daughters and think, what are they going to do? I wonder. He's a priest. He's old. That's going to become important. He's old. He's righteous. It's interesting. Luke tells us that Zechariah has done everything right. So has Elizabeth. They've done everything right. I think partly uh, he's telling us that for two reasons. Firstly, so that we don't, we're not quick to condemn him. So we're not quick to think Zechariah is a bad guy. And therefore, he doesn't have children because he's a bad guy. People can be tempted to think that. They see somebody who, for whom life has not worked out the way they want to and think, ah, Well, if only he was a better person, if only she was a better person, it would have worked out differently. And that actually undermines everything Jesus teaches. And so Luke goes out of his way to say, no, these are are people who keep the law. They're righteous people. He's successful. Don't know if you noticed that. When Zechariah is ministering in the temple, there is a large crowd outside. To put it in context, now you think this is a man who is a preacher who when he preaches, thousands come to hear him. You know, he's John Wesley. When John Wesley turned up, particularly towards the end of his life in a village or a town, the whole town would come out to hear him. Thousands. To the point where the magistrates used to get worried about rioting. Right? That's what Zechariah is doing. When Zechariah is on duty in the temple, the crowds come. He's a man who is successful in his work. And he's been praying for his whole life. You see, now the narrative switches from Zechariah to God. What does Gabriel say? Gabriel, the angel of the Lord, turns up 
and he's terrified. Suddenly, there's this man who's clothed in light, usually carrying a sword in Scripture, who turns up in the middle of the temple, and he's standing next to the altar, and Zechariah is terrified. And he has this message. You see, Gabriel tells him about what God is doing for Zechariah. God has heard Zechariah's prayer. Now, it turns out Zechariah's been praying for his whole life for a child. God will answer his prayer. In fact, God is going to answer Zechariah's prayer in a way that Zechariah could never have dreamed of. His, his child is going to be great. He's going to be a prophet. He's going to be the fulfillment of the uh, predictions made in the Old Testament. People are going to stream to see him. You know, he doesn't say this, but you can imagine that thousands, you know, if the angel Gabriel came and said, do you know what's going to happen? In thousands of years' time, all around the world, in continents you don't know exist, there are going to be people who venerate the name of your son. God is going to answer your prayer and he's going to answer in a way that you never dreamed of. Now, I don't know what we expect Zechariah to say in response to this. But I love the way that Luke records what he actually did say. Or the gist of what he actually did say. Which is, how can I know that that will happen? You can imagine there's this angel standing there, you know, he's clothed in light. He's got his sword in his hand. He says, Zechariah, get up. He's in the room in the temple where the priest ministers, waiting to go out to see the people. There's no one else there. You can imagine this angel suddenly appears and he says, Zechariah, it's amazing. Your son's going to be the fulfillment of everything Israel's hoping for. He's going to point to God's son. It's going to be amazing. And Zechariah says, oh yeah. Is he really? How can I know? How can I be sure? You can imagine, so the angel looks down. He thinks, what? Glowing man appears out of nowhere, massive sword. I'm announcing news from God. What do you mean, how can I be sure? How can I know? You sense the kind of disbelief in Gabriel's voice. How can I? What? I stand in the presence of God most high. Of course it's going to happen. God says it's going to happen, it's going to happen. Of course it's going to happen. The idea that you wouldn't believe me doesn't even occur to Gabriel. Gabriel says, well, you're going you're to be, here's, here's your proof. You wanted proof, here's your proof, you're going to lose your voice. Not just for a week, you're going to lose your voice for, for nine months. That's your sign. It's interesting, Zechariah. So, so Gabriel rebukes uh, Zechariah's demand that God prove that he's going to do what he says he's going to do. And uh, Zechariah gets this, uh, gets this sign that tells him that it's going to happen because he, immediately he can't speak. And... Uh, interestingly, he goes away and he acts in faith. Now, I don't know if anybody else noticed that while we were reading through. This came out to be very strong when I was sitting in a hospital waiting room. But Zechariah goes away and acts in faith. What do I mean by that? Well, he goes home and he sleeps with his wife. Elizabeth's pregnancy is, not, is miraculous in the sense that she's too old to have children. She's past the age of, that women normally uh, stop having children. She's gone through the menopause. But it's not miraculous in the sense that it's a virgin birth. Zechariah has to go home and he has to decide, am I going to sleep with my wife? And he obviously does. See, Zechariah hears what the angel says and he acts in faith. 
interestingly, even in the midst of his doubts, we're going to come back to that, even in the midst of his doubts, he nevertheless acts in faith and obedience. Then you've got Mary. Mary is like the polar opposite of Zechariah. So we're introduced to her. She's young. She's not old. She's young. She's not a priest. Priests were men in the uh, Old Testament, at the start of the New Testament. Priests are men. And she's a woman. He's married. She's not married. He is successful. When he ministers in the temple, there are crowds. She is obscure. What do I mean by that? I mean we're told nothing about her background. You can work out Mary's background from various genealogies, but Luke's not interested in doing that here. He tells us nothing about her. She's obscure. He's in Jerusalem, ministering in the temple. She is in Nazareth, which is a backwater in the north. If you think of a village outside Newcastle, that's the, that, that is in relation to London, what Nazareth is in relation to Jerusalem. She's from nowheresville, nowhere, and she's nobody. And the angel appears to her. What does he say to her? He says, you're highly favoured. God is going to show you grace. Interestingly, he doesn't say she's righteous. He doesn't say she's kept the law. What she says is God is showing grace to you. God loves you. God is with you. What's Mary's reaction? Well, Mary is troubled. It's worth pondering that for a moment. If uh, we pray with people and we prophesy with people sometimes, and very often if I'm ministering with someone who's in a sense of distress, sometimes I don't even know what the problem is, but you sense promptings from God to say something. And I have felt prompted to say to people, I want you to, before we do anything else, I think the real problem is you don't know that God is with you. You feel like you're alone. And it's a comforting thing. God loves you. It's a comforting thing. I've never had anyone say, well, that's a troubling thought. Why does Mary say that? Well, Mary says, Mary's troubled at this greeting, I think, because she understands what it means. As soon as the angel says, don't worry, you're highly favoured, God is with you, she, and Mary's mind turns to the implications of that. And actually, if you trace Mary's journey through the Gospels, Mary's journey is one of joy and rejoicing, but it's also one of pain. She sees her son rejected by the world. If you're the mother of a prophet, the chances are you're going to see your son badly mistreated. I wonder whether her mind turned to Isaiah and the others who were, uh, to Jeremiah, who was put in dungeons and thrown out of the temple and imprisoned and then kidnapped and sure enough actually if you follow the story of Mary all the way through each time she meets someone who prophesies to her they say to her your son is the most important person who's ever lived you're highly favored and it's going to cause you enormous pain it's interesting this but the angel responds by saying look I want you to know that God loves you you're highly favoured. I understand it's troubling, but God loves you. He will be with you. He will bless you. He'll give you a son and you will call him Jesus. Now, interesting, Mary asks for an explanation. She doesn't ask for evidence. Mary's not turning around saying, how can I know this will be? Are you kidding me? 
I don't believe you. Mary turns around and says, I don't understand. I don't understand. I'm a, I'm a virgin. I don't have a husband. I've not slept with a man. I, I, you, know, you get this idea now in the modern world. People go, well, before 1700, everyone was thick and they thought that babies grew on trees. You know. Mary's not thick. She, she understands the birds and the bees. She's like, well, I, I don't want to break it to you, but I can't have a baby. I'm not married yet. He says, well, don't worry. There is an explanation for how that's going to happen. Interesting to note, again, that the angel does not rebuke her for not understanding. The angel does not rebuke her for not understanding and for asking for more information. She then responds in faith and says that she trusts God. Hopefully, as I've talked that through, you can see how the two stories parallel each other. So what do they teach us about God? Well, look at this. Yes, I was into tables this week. I'm very into tables at the moment. I've learned how to use Keynote, and uh, I'm, uh, I'm very keen on this. What does it show us about God? Well, it shows us that, first of all, God has a plan for the world, and it's centered on Jesus. We can feel as if the world is drifting by or directionless. We can feel the world is drifting by its direction. Ugh. Where is it all going? What's it all doing? It's kind of malaise. <clears throat> to get kind of political, historical, it afflicts the West. It's afflicted the West ever since the 1990, when the Berlin Wall fell, 1989-1990. And um, Fukuyama predicted this is the end of history. And, and you get this sense, particularly in Western cultures where we are now, that that's how life can feel. As if you're just like, this, we're just drifting through life. We're getting a bit richer. We're getting a bit poorer. We're, what's it all about? Or it can, it can affect us on a, on a micro level, on the level of our lives. You know, I'm going through school and I drift through and I do my exams and then university and then I get a job, I might get married, I might have kids and then I might get a pension and then I might die. Well, I probably will die, that's more certain, you know. You think, well, what's it all about? Is it going anywhere? Think, well, the, the angel's message says that God has a plan for the world and that it centers on Jesus. All the way from hundreds of years before Zechariah or Mary were born, from thousands of years before that, God was working out a purpose to bring Jesus, that he would die and rise and he would glorify God. When we look back, we can see it. Actually, you, as you look back over your life, you can see how God was working through different things. As one gets older, one is able to look back and say, oh, I can see now how God was working through that. But when we're at the time, it's very difficult to remember it. And, and so I think this story is partly here to encourage us to remember that God is working even when we can't see it. He has a time and he will do it. He just works on a different timescale to us, a bit like the hospital. Everybody will get seen. There is a plan. It's just we're working on a different time. Second thing it tells us is that God wants to use us as part of that plan. We get so used to these stories because we grow up in Christianity that, or you come to Christianity within a culture which is Christian that we can miss how remarkable these stories are. What on earth is God doing producing babies? Why would he want to? Why would he bother? You know, why not? You know, I was, uh, I was uh, looking at Toby's comic this morning. Uh, Toby, uh, Toby's reading a, a wonderful comic series about... Um, 
uh, the Justice League of America and Superman's dead and it's all amazing. And uh, don't worry, spoiler alert, Superman comes back to life. Um, why? Because he's a type of Jesus. Every comic book is basically retelling the story of Jesus over and over again. You're welcome. I've just saved you four years of literary criticism. Um, so Superman dies and he gets resurrected. Anyway, they... I was reading this story and I thought, well, that's a good... I was thinking about this story that I, I noticed Toby reading beforehand. And I was thinking, that's a great story, isn't it? God, you know, the... the, the not a god sent Superman, but he sort of comes from outer space and he comes as an alien into the world on a ship. You know, that's a good idea, isn't it? Why doesn't God just send a ship? Why doesn't Jesus just arrive fully, fully formed and, and, uh, and uh, standing in the sky with, uh, you know, a cape? And everyone looks up and sees, oh, the saviour of the world. He's even got an S on his chest, you know. You're welcome, S for saviour, you're welcome. Thinking of your tuition fees, I'm saving you for your English literature degrees. They, God doesn't do that. He goes to a woman who's too old to have children and enables her to have a child. And he goes to a woman who's, in a sense, not too young, but, but who's not at the stage of life where she, she can have children, she doesn't have a partner, and, and gives her a baby. Why? Actually, you find this all the way through the Bible. God doesn't work on us. He doesn't just do stuff to us. He does stuff through us. But ethically, that's really important. Because we can then think, well, why doesn't God do something about my neighbour who's miserable and lonely and hungry? And the answer is, God is desperate to do something about your neighbour who's miserable and hungry and lonely. And the first thing he's done is shown you it. Or shown me it. The second thing he's going to do is inspire me to cook them a meal. The third thing God is going to do is inspire me to take the meal round. God doesn't work, do stuff to us. He does stuff through us. He wants to include us in his work. So that's interesting. Again, one of the other phenomena that happens in the late modern West, this is my, back in my political critique, is that we become very, very lazy. I'm not talking about anybody here. You're incredibly hardworking and diligent and I love you very much. But we as a culture become lazy. We sort of sit back and we think, why doesn't somebody do something? If you're, if you're critiquing God, you say, why doesn't God do something? About, usually it's about some mess that we've caused. Why doesn't God fix my mess? Or the mess that we as a society have caused. Or we think, well, why doesn't the state do something to fix the mess? Now, I'm in favour of the welfare state. I'm very, very pro. Our taxation and redistribution is great. But it can lead to that attitude. Why doesn't somebody else do something about it? And God says, well, no, I want to come and I want to work with you. I want to work with you. So that we, him and us, we can do something about it. We can't simply look back and critique God's action in the world. It's our work because he works with us and through us. This is what these stories are about. This, this whole idea that God works through women having children is exactly that point. It's a vivid demonstration of the fact that God works in us and through us. That without Mary, there is no Jesus. How do we respond determines what part we play. The flip side of this is the way we respond to God determines the part we play in that uh, in that. Uh, plan. 
See, God has a plan. God's plan will work out, but it doesn't have to include me. I have a responsibility in how I respond. Zechariah is mute for the entire period of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Now, she might be rejoicing at this. Think think of what the providential provision is of this mute husband for the entire period you're pregnant. The way we interact with what God is doing affects our experience of it. Affects our experience of it. You get a sense of this, actually, in the book of Esther. And Mordecai, who's Esther's cousin, says, do you know the story of Esther? That there's a plan to exterminate the Jews while they're living in exile in Persia. And uh, the, uh, Esther has providentially become the wife of the king, one of his harem, and she's sort of favoured at the moment. And the plan is to exterminate the Jews. And uh, Mordecai, Esther's cousin, says, you're the queen, go to the king and intercede for the people. Ask him to, do, to stop this happening. And uh, Mordecai says to Esther... You should know that God will stop this happening whatever happens. If you don't do this, God will find someone who will. But your part will have been played by someone else. Your experience of this will be of the person who said no rather than the person who said yes. Our response matters. What does this mean for us to wind up? What does it mean for how we should live? Well, first of all, We need to watch for what God is doing in the world. If we take seriously this idea that God can work through any of us, from the young girl in a village outside Newcastle, through to the priest ministering in Westminster Abbey, where the the abbey is packed, if it can be as distant a part as that, it can be anyone. Anyone in this room can be used by God. Now, that's not me saying, please don't hear me saying, that we're all going to be world changers. That would be an easy sermon to stand by saying, everyone's going to be world changers, a chosen generation, yeah! But it does mean that everyone in this room can be used by God in the year to come. God has a plan for the world centred on Jesus and he wants to use us in it. Whether we are young or old, male or female, ordained or newly Christian, or even unsure about Christianity, God can use you. So it's important that we notice the world and what God is doing in it. It's not just about big things. I'm not saying God can use you so you're going to stand outside Waitrose and you're going to be laying your hands on the sick as they come out and they're all going to be healed and it's going to be amazing and there'll be a revival and people will be streaming in from, you know, praise God, if that happens, if I come back and there is revival and there's 6,000 people in this church and there's someone who's been standing outside Waitrose, you know, or outside the school ministering healing to people and I'm very happy to resign. Wonderful. Praise God if that happens. But I think it more likely that what will happen is that he prompts us to do something small. Do you notice your neighbour is lonely and hungry and so you bake her a cake? Do you notice someone can't get to the shops or can't get to church so you offer them a lift? Do you give someone a hug, that you listen, that you invite them to come with you to church? Do you pray with someone, right? These small things are where God starts to work. And actually as those small things build up, God begins to change the world around us. I know, I think about this this week actually because... Um, I handed over the running of the football game that I've been running on a Monday. I'm not going to be around. It can't be happening on the church insurance without me. 
I handed it over to some other people. It's become something I slightly hadn't imagined, right? Which is that five years ago, me and a friend of mine who has a loose relationship with church, I think he would probably describe himself as agnostic, decided to start a football match because um, we noticed, first of all, we wanted to play football. It's divinely, uh, divinely ordained sport. And secondly, we noticed that a lot of the guys we met didn't have any friends, or at least not in this area. Uh, so we, we, we started a football match for us and our friends and for those around so that people could come along, they could meet other men, they could play football, they could have fun, and I could teach them about Jesus. I didn't say that to anyone else, that was what I did. Right, so I send them texts and say, look, I'm praying for you if you want to talk to someone. I know that guys don't have anyone to talk to, mental health issues, all the rest of it. Come and talk to me, it doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not. Started this, we started it with, I think we had eight people the first week. By the time we handed over the WhatsApp group, I had 50 people. Right, five years. Now, that's reasonably good growth. It started with two guys sat here drinking coffee and eating cake at a dad's group in the morning on a Saturday, thinking, what could we do that would bless our friends? Multiplied five times over. Now it's, now it's taken off. It's being run by someone else. It's the only 11-a-side game that happens every week in the area. Brilliant. It can be as simple as that. God has a plan for the world centered on Jesus and he wants to use you. Your cake you bake for your neighbor might lead them to bake a cake for a neighbor, which might lead to your street stopping from being in despair and coming to being in joy. The hug you give to a mum at school might take them from the point of wanting to end it all to being able to cope with the next day and the next day and the next day. Second, we need to guard our hearts. I'm going to finish in a moment. We guard our hearts. We can, be dis- we can become disappointed over time. I think this is, the, this is what's happened to Zechariah. And I want to say something for a moment to those who are old Christians. Right? I mean that in both ways. And I don't normally use the word elderly. I use, use a euphemism, but I don't see why I should. You might be a Christian, someone who's been a Christian for 20, 30 years, and you might be approaching old age, uh, as it's defined by the world, and you might have just become disappointed. That's okay. Zechariah was disappointed. Zechariah was disillusioned. He was a righteous man. He did everything right. He kept going. He honoured God, he led in the temple and his heart had become sad and it had become disillusioned and he thought to himself I've been praying for years and now it's too late and, and, and actually what you notice about Zechariah is that his, his understanding of God has changed over that time when, when Gabriel comes and says God is going to do this wonderful thing, Zechariah says well how can I know How do I know that he's willing to do good things for me? How do I know that he's powerful to do good things for me? I'm so disappointed with everything he's done or not done that when an angel is standing in front of me, all I can think is, oh yeah, cynical, full of doubt. You know, that's not the worst sin in the world. I'm going to say that now. 
almost everyone in this room who's been a Christian for 40 years or more, or even for 10 years, or maybe even for five years, has gone through seasons where we experience, and I will include myself in this, disappointment and doubt. If you find yourself going through that, I want to say to you, it is perfectly normal. Actually, everyone goes through that, whether they're in the church or out of the church. It's not a religious thing particularly, it's just part of human life. And it's not the worst sin in the world. Zechariah is here, who is a priest, who's a very popular priest, whom God is going to send John the Baptist through, and he experiencing chronic doubt, chronic disappointment. What I want to say is if you find yourself in that place, just be aware that it can change how we respond to God when he does move. Look at Zechariah's example. Zechariah and Elizabeth actually are afflicted with this all the way through this example. Do you notice that Elizabeth stays in hiding for the first six months of her pregnancy? She's still doubting whether God will actually give her the baby or whether she'll miscarry. And there's no condemnation. They carry on and they faithfully do what they know they should do, even when they don't feel the way they should feel. Zechariah, even though the angel has come and told him and he doesn't believe, in his heart of hearts, he feels odd. He goes and he only sleeps with his wife. Imagine the, the level of, he's making himself vulnerable. The level of disappointment that could come from that. He carries on and and acts, even when he doesn't feel like it. Actually, if you are going through a season of doubt right now, then I'm very, very happy to talk to you about it. As I say, it's perfectly normal. I go through seasons like that. Everybody I know goes through seasons like that. We just don't like to talk about it. What I would say is don't panic. Carry on reading the Bible, praying, and doing the things you know you should do, taking care and loving people. And actually, you find that when you come out of the season... God has blessed you more and your faith is deeper and richer. We didn't get to the point where John the Baptist is born, but Zechariah is the one who declares to everyone, no, his name is John. They want to call him after Zechariah. And Zechariah says, no, his name is John. God did this. God did this. We're going to be... And he finds his fullness there. Secondly, you might be young and afraid. Afraid of what following Jesus might mean. If you're young in the faith and you're afraid of what following Jesus might mean, good, you've understood. Good, you've understood. That when Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, it's not like a nice metaphor. He's saying, if you want to walk into life and lead other people into life, it can hurt. You've understood. Remember that God is stronger than anything you will face. And he's good and he wants to bring you joy even in the midst of pain. And actually your life can transform. You know, there is no other woman who has statues in every city, in every continent of the world than Mary. Now, I personally object to statues of Mary being in church, but it is striking to note that when she says that every generation will cause me blessed and she was afraid of what it would mean for her, there is no other woman in the whole of human history who has had more acclaim and accord given to her than Mary. God is bigger and he's stronger and he has a plan and he will use you in it. Don't be afraid. God wants to bless us and to use us in his plan to save the world through Jesus. 
And so we need to respond to the call he gives. And I'm just going to leave some space. Like five minutes, four minutes of silence. You might find silence really uncomfortable. I make no apology. I'm just going to leave some silence. I'm going to encourage you to be sitting. You might want to sit with your eyes closed. You might want to sit with your hands open. And just ask God to speak. Notice what he's saying. And if you sense that he's saying something to you, say the words that Mary said, yes, Lord, I'm your servant. Yes, Lord, I'm your servant. Let's just be quiet.